For those that are remaining here, if you would turn your attention to Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, the passage is printed in your bulletins. And if you would, as you follow along, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now let me ask you before you sit down, this is the congregational reading, this is the passage we're reading together as we try to memorize scripture together. There's a bookmark in your bulletin if you want to stick it on your refrigerator or carry it with you as we work together to memorize these passages. So would you read together with me, again the passage I just read, Romans 1 verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Please be seated and join me once again in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you this morning that you would be here present in the preaching of the word, working among your people, sanctifying them, glorifying yourself, making them more like your son. We ask, Lord God, that you would do a supernatural work within us, that we would be captivated with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would turn from our sin and cling only to Christ Jesus. We love you. We thank you. And we ask that you would be here with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to tell you before we begin, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I have arthritis, and about twice a year I wake up and I can't walk, okay? And today is one of those days. So I got to tell you what I did this morning. First of all, I told my wife, I'm not going to wear dress shoes. I'm going to wear soft-toed sneakers, Okay? And I said, I'm going to bring a chair in case I have to sit down. And she said to me, well, you better be careful. They might think you're turning into one of those trendy pastors, right, who wears the cool sneakers and sits on the seat. Um, I may have to sit down. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. This morning, we're looking at 
Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. It's the passage I just read aloud. And let me tell you something. The first part of chapter 1 is really the introduction to this book because when we get to verses 16 and 17 next week and then 18, we're really now in the substance of Paul's argument. Okay, we begin to see a theological argument developing. But up until that point, we really are looking at introductions. Last week was Paul's introduction to himself. This week is Paul's introduction to his agenda. This is his agenda that he has among the Romans. Essentially, he is saying to them, when I come to you, here's what I intend to do. Here's what I intend to proclaim, to teach, and to speak about. And essentially, one of the things we have here is not only an agenda for his visit with them, this is his agenda in writing to them the epistle to the Romans, this letter. Both of them are very synonymous. What he intends to say when he visits them is the very thing that he will say when he writes to them, okay? And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're we're going to be looking at, I'm going to draw it as a picture so it, it, it remains in your mind. This is the Apostle Paul. All right, and this is the church in Rome, and I understand a church is not a building, but this is a visual image for you who are visual learners. This is the church in Rome, and the question is, what is the relationship between Paul and the church in Rome? Because the better we understand the relationship, as Paul lays out his agenda among them, the better we understand the epistle to the Romans. Essentially, we're saying if we understand what Paul means to the Roman church and what they mean to him as he lays out the agenda, then we begin to understand the feeling or the ethos of the epistle to the Romans. Okay, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And let me say, I think the most significant characteristic that defines the relationship between Paul and the church to Rome can actually be found in verse 8 this morning. It's the most significant thing in all of this relationship between him and the church. Now think about this. There's, there's much that defines their relationship. Uh, the Apostle Paul has said that this is a young and fledgling church. And so he treats them as sort of young believers in the faith who are gathered together as a church. That's true. We see that throughout the epistle. He says in Romans 16 that he knows many of these believers personally. There are 27 names in chapter 16, three households, that he identifies, that he knows personally. He knows many of these believers very well. He will say in chapter 15, this church is full of wisdom and of goodness, and that's a defining characteristic. But in verse 8 this morning is the most significant thing that Paul will say about the church in Rome. He says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And I want to tell you that's a very significant characteristic of the church in Rome. There is no other church in all of the New Testament where anything even remotely like this is said of them. Okay? Your faith is known in all of the world. That's Paul's way of saying where I have gone and where I have traveled and I have planted churches Believers there, and maybe even unbelievers, have heard about and are talking about the faith of the Roman church. That characteristic of the church in Rome will come to be the defining characteristic whereby Paul will relate to them as believers whose faith is known throughout all the world. Now let me say as we begin the conversation this morning, 
let me say, would it be that something even remotely close to this might be said of Mercy Presbyterian Church, right? That we would be known by our faith that people in Forest and in Lynchburg, and dare I say beyond Lynchburg, might say that Mercy Presbyterian Church is a church that is known by its faith. Wouldn't that be amazing? But I want you to see how unique that is of the Roman church. This is the defining characteristic. It is the quality that Paul elevates and highlights above all qualities of this church in Rome that essentially stands out to him as the most significant thing about the church. Now this morning I want to tell you about four of the characteristics of this relationship that Paul has with this church that is filled with faith Four characteristics of this relationship that are important, they are essentially highlighted here at the beginning, and they will come to define this book. First of all, Paul's relationship to Rome is other-centered, or it's a, it's a, it's a relationship that is service-oriented, that he selflessly serves these believers in Rome. Look at the, the verse 11, what Paul says. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now I tell you, I believe that's significant because often we think of a body of believers and what they can do for us, right? We go to a church and we think, what do I get out of that? Or we have friends in our congregation and we think, what do I gain from this relationship? But Paul says, my relationship with you is first and foremost built upon the premise that I desire to come to you and to serve you. Now that verse 11, if you were to kind of take it and you were to look at all the, the meaning of the words, here's essentially what Paul says. First of all, the first word of that verse is a word that means to have an intense craving. It's typically used as a negative word um, to describe like an addiction, okay? It means something that is deeply seated in the heart and you really can't get rid of it. Like you can't shake the the inclination, the feeling. Paul is saying, I have an intense craving to come to you. I really earnestly desire to come and be with you Christians in Rome. And he says that his desire is to come to them so that he might impart a spiritual gift to strengthen them, okay? A spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, I want to tell you uh, that word, to strengthen them, I think it's better translated in the New American Standard. So if you have a New American Standard, you're reading it, you'll see there, it doesn't say to strengthen you, it actually says to establish you. I long to come and impart a spiritual gift to establish you, that you might be established. Now, I do want to tell you about this word, the Greek word, sterizo, okay? Here's what it means. It's, a, it's an agricultural word. And it, and it means, it's a description of when you would plant a seed in the ground and the seed begins to grow and it's like this little sprout, okay? So there's my little sprout. And, and, and what it means is, it's the, the building up or the fortifying of the little sprout that's growing out of the ground. Now, if you've ever grown vegetables or flowers and you've grown them from a seed, you know what happens. The seed begins to emerge out of the soil and it's this little skinny sprout that reaches up for the sunlight. And if you're not careful, it reaches too high. And at its skinny base, it sort of falls over. You ever experienced that? Right? It reaches too high and it's not strong enough at the bottom. It falls over. The word that's used here is the word that, that is describing a sprout that is being fortified at its base, right? Or a stake being driven in the ground. And it's, it's tied to the stake. It's, it's the word that's meant to communicate a fortifying at the base, a, a foundational establishment, 
a strengthening at the bottom which will keep the sprout growing up. You see the picture that Paul's painting. I I long earnestly to come to you to impart a spiritual gift that you might be fortified at your base, that you might be established, that you might be strengthened. It's this beautiful desire to come and fortify the church in Rome. Now the other part of that sentence in verse 11 is, is the phrase, Uh, to impart a spiritual gift. What do you think Paul means by imparting a spiritual gift? I'll I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. First of all, he doesn't mean he's coming to deliver a physical gift, right? Like when I come to you, I'll bring flowers and homemade jelly, okay? And I made it myself, and I can't wait to give it to you. That's not what Paul means, though he may have brought physical gifts to Rome. We don't know. He calls it a spiritual gift, and some people have uh, postulated Paul means that he, he's coming to impart a, a supernatural spiritual gift, like he wants to come and heal them or speak tongues or to prophesy among them. And though that may be possible, because the apostles were equipped with these miraculous gifts, I, I don't think it's consonant with the character of Paul, nor is it consonant with what we're reading in chapter 1. You see, the apostle Paul would say many times, right, Though you have tongues and though you prophesy, he would emphasize, first of all, the normal uh, basic gifts of love, right, and of faith, and he would emphasize the preaching of the word. It was always so important to Paul, the preaching of the word. And so I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Roman church is that I long to come and to preach the word of God among you that you may be fortified, that you may be built up. Okay? I think that's evident for a variety of reasons. First of all, you read Romans. This is his agenda when he comes among them. And what is the book of Romans other than the preaching of the word? Right? We don't read Romans and hear this great emphasis on miraculous gifts. We hear the preaching of the word. But second of all, what else is needed to fortify a young church? Right? What else is needed to build up a young church other than the preaching of the word? This is what Paul means to impart to them. Okay, so let me tell you something. We now know some of the characteristics of the book of Romans. If you're reading Romans and you're saying, okay, what's this epistle for? How should I use it in my life? How should I uh, share it with other people? Let me tell you, the epistle to the Romans is a spiritual gift of the preaching of the word that is used to fortify Christians, okay? To fortify young Christians and old Christians, little plants that are growing up, uh, moving up towards God, being molded and made into the image of Christ Jesus who need to be fortified at their base and to be strengthened and secured and lifted up and kept from falling down. This is the function of the epistle to the Romans. So when we read it, one of the things we're reading is literally we're reading the word of God given to us to strengthen and encourage us. And when we waver in our faith and we doubt the goodness of the Lord God and we wonder what God is doing in our lives and all around us, we can read the epistle and we can be strengthened and built up. And it's beautiful. And if you're discipling a young believer and they're saying, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a new believer and I'm, I'm not sure where to go and what to read, take them to the epistle of the Romans. Read Romans with them that they might be strengthened and built up as well. Okay, so that's what we're going to see in the Epistle of the Romans. The, the second thing, Paul's relationship with the church is mutually beneficial. Okay, it's mutually beneficial. 
You see that in verse 12? As we're reading, Paul goes on and he says this, uh, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay? Both yours and mine. Let me tell you something. This is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. I just said Paul's relationship is that he goes to serve them, and yet now he's saying we're going to be mutually edified and encouraged. The paradox of the Christian life, as Jesus himself would say, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. And if you want to be filled up, you must be emptied. And if you want to be encouraged, you must serve, right? That's the, sort of the, the theme of, of Christian living, and it's part of the paradox of the Christian life. This sentence is terribly interesting. I was going to write this word in Greek, but I don't think you'll see it. I'll write it anyway. It's the word sum para kaleo. And if you're thinking, wow, that seems like a, a, a bunch of words put together, that's because it is. Okay, it's three words. Sum para kaleo. Sum means together. Para means beside. Kaleo, in this instance, means to be encouraged. Okay, so the word that Paul begins the sentence with, literally says this, together beside encouraged, right? That's what we translate as mutual encouragement. Together beside, I'll be beside you and we'll be encouraged. And the, the picture, as Paul writes the sentence, let me just read to you a, a wooden translation of the sentence. This is what it literally says, together beside encouraged, in you through the among one another faith of both you and me, okay? And, and it sounds a little strange, right? But the the exact phraseology that Paul is using is meant to bring almost a mixture of ideas to us. That we would get this idea that he's saying, listen, when I come to you, I'll be among you and you'll be among me and, and you have faith in Christ and I have faith in Christ and we have faith in Christ and there's our mutual faith and there's our individual faith and when we spend time together and we rub shoulders and we are together, we will all be encouraged. That there will be a mutual edification and affirmation just for me serving you and you're probably gonna serve me and we will all be encouraged simultaneously at the same time. That's why the passage says that we may be both encouraged in our mutual faith. You see, Paul can't wait to go to Rome and to serve the church, right? Because in serving, he recognizes that he will be encouraged. He will see their faith and he will say, well, thank God for the faith of the Roman Christians. How amazing is this that God has built a church out of nothing? and his spirit will be lifted up. You see, the apostle Paul, everywhere we read of him, he only says twice, he only talks twice ever in all of the epistles about receiving a reward or a payment for his services. First Corinthians and Colossians, and both times he says, my reward, my payment, for what I'm doing among you is to see the fruit of the gospel. The thing that will satisfy me, right? All that I want from you is to see the fruit of the gospel. That's why he says in verse 13, I long to come to you that I may reap some harvest among you. That's the harvest that he wants to reap. He wants to be, be, uh, be a, among the Roman Christians, to be among the Gentiles in Rome, to preach the word of God and to see the fruit of the gospel being worked out in them that he might be mutually encouraged. So let me just ask you a few questions. When you look around you and, and you hear people speaking of their faith, are you encouraged by that? Are you mutually encouraged? I think sometimes we tend to think, okay, here we go, another person sharing their testimony. 
right? Like I've heard this a thousand times. Uh, we grow old or weary of hearing the work of God in others' lives. May it never be, right? We ought to be mutually encouraged. Let me ask you another question. Have you felt let down by your church or by your brothers and sisters in Christ? Has that ever happened to you where you feel like, man, I wish they would care for me and they just haven't cared for me? Okay, or they haven't remembered that important thing to me, that, that date that was important, or they haven't remembered how needy I am at this moment, or they haven't reached out and given me a call, or they haven't served me as I need to be served, or they haven't cared for me. Have you ever felt like that? I imagine most of you have. Let me say, first of all, I'm sorry, but second of all, I have a sort of counterintuitive idea. If you've felt that, let me encourage you to go and serve those others. Okay, go and serve those others who you feel have let you down. Because the beauty of what Jesus Christ tells us is that as he is at work in his church, by serving others, we become mutually edified and encouraged. It's just the way it works. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it myself. I know you've experienced it yourself as well. It feels, it feels counterintuitive, like no way, no way I'm going to extend myself and they haven't done this for me. I feel burned. I feel, uh, I feel like I've, uh, I've been just neglected, but I want to encourage you. That's what we're called to as believers, to yet serve others even when we feel as if they haven't served us, okay? That is the work of the Spirit in the church, the mutual edification of believers. Third observation about Paul's relationship is that it is compulsory. It is compulsory. Look at verses 13 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you. Thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, if you were paying attention there, first of all, in verse 13, he says, I long to come to you, and not only to you, but to the Gentiles who are in Rome. So he now extends his vision, not just to the church in Rome, but to everybody in Rome. Right? Like, I'm coming to you, the Roman church, can't wait to hear of our mutual faith, to be encouraged, but I long to come to you and to all the Gentiles in Rome that I might also preach to them. So he's now extended more broadly his vision, and what does he say? For I am obligated to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the fool. That's what compulsory means. It means to be obligated. It means to be required. It means that it is necessary. It's not subjective. It must be done. It has to be done. Paul is saying that I am required to serve Greeks and barbarians, wise and fool. I am under obligation, so let me ask you a question. How is Paul obligated to people in Rome that he has never met? How is he obligated to them? The word obligated is, a, is typically a financial word. It means to be a debtor, right? Like I borrowed money from you and I haven't paid it back and I am now obligated to repay it. Or it could mean somebody who gave you something and now you owe them. How is Paul indebted to people in Rome that he has never met. How's that work? 
I, I tell you how it works, and it's significant for an understanding of, of Paul's epistle. Paul knows himself to be obligated first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he's obligated to Christ, by virtue of the commands of Jesus Christ, he is now obligated to all people. See how that works? And if you're looking for, like, okay, well, where does it come from? Let me tell you, you kind of rewind, go to Acts chapter 9. That's Paul's conversion. And you remember how this all plays out. Saul, the persecutor of Christians, on the road to Damascus, encounters the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He causes a blindness to fall over Saul. He becomes Paul. He says, go to Damascus, and there you will wait for someone to come and get you. And Paul goes, filled with fear in his heart, eyes still blind, not sure what's going to happen. Ananias is chosen by God, and God says to Ananias, go to the apostle Paul and tell him, you are my chosen vessel to take my message to Gentiles and to kings and to Jews throughout all the world. At that very moment, the Apostle Paul becomes obligated. He's obligated to Christ, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's obligated to all men for the preaching of the word. It's the very thing that he speaks about here in this compulsory uh, relationship that he now has with the Roman church. And so let me ask you another question. Do you feel obligated to all people? At least in this way for the preaching of the word, and for loving your neighbor as yourself, do you feel obligated to all people? You might say, well, I didn't encounter Jesus on the road to Damascus. Yes, but the Lord God has commanded us, right? As Jesus sends out the disciples, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. We have been commanded. We, are, we have an obligatory relationship as well. You see, I think so often as Christians if you think about obligation, it is more likely that we think of others as obligated to us. Right? I mean, this is, you go through your day, you think about the way you speak and how you think about other people, I'm sure you think of them as obligated to you. Like, uh, uh, they ought to be taking care of their things better, right? The, the lawn next door that's not mowed. Man, if they should just mow that because that's really making my house look bad. Like, they're obligated to you. They go driving too fast down the road. How dare they drive too fast down the road? They're obligated to me to, to take care of this neighborhood, okay? Or like uh, exactly as I said before, they, they haven't checked in on me. They're not treating me well. How dare they? They are obligated to me to treat me well, to be generous to me and to be kind. How dare they, right? We think of the obligatory role as one from them to me because we think so highly of ourselves. The Apostle Paul says, I'm obligated. I have never met you, but I'm obligated to you. I'm obligated to serve you. I'm obligated to minister to you and to proclaim the good news to you. I want to encourage you to think of yourselves as obligated to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore obligated to all men. I think that would change the way you think about the people you interact with every day. We think of obligation often as a negative word, don't we? And I think we often think, hey, we're Christians. We're not obligated to anything. We're free, right? But that's not the reality of the gospel. 
the reality of the gospel is that we're freed from condemnation and we're freed from the wrath of God, but we realize through the proclamation of the word, we realize that we were created with an obligation to the living God. And now being redeemed, we have a new obligation to Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. The the reality in the gospel is not that we're not obligated, but rather that the obligations of God are not burdensome to us. But they become lovely and pleasing to us. That's what Paul says. You look at verse 14, and he says, I'm obligated, and he says, I'm obligated to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the fool, but look at, uh, look at the next verse in 15. So, so I am eager. And the word so is the connecting word. I'm obligated and it's compulsory and I, and I must do it. So I am eager. And if you're struggling to understand this, let me give you a brief example. I used to coach volleyball. You know because I always talk about it, okay? And uh, when I used to coach volleyball, I had to travel often for volleyball matches, right? And so there was, uh, we'd just travel from here and there and everywhere and go to play games and we'd return home and there were late nights. And, um, and as, you, as I thought about that, I thought, okay, well, am I obligated to do this? Yes, I am. It's part of the job description, okay? I have to travel and coach volleyball. There's no question. But do I like it? Absolutely. I love it, okay? I love everything about it. The reality is something may be an obligation, but it also may be desirable and lovely. And the reality of the gospel is that one of the evidences of the grace of God at work in our hearts is that his commands and his obligations become pleasing and lovely to us, that we desire them. So one of the questions you ought to ask is, as as I'm obligated to the Lord Jesus Christ, as I become a servant, a slave to Christ because of the gospel, does what he commands me to do become pleasing to me? Is it lovely? and beautiful, and desirable. Not perfectly all the time, but is that happening more and more in my heart? It's an evidence of the work of the Spirit. Okay, finally, as we think about this relationship that Paul has, the fourth thing is that it is gospel-oriented. It is gospel-oriented. You see that in verse 15. He says, so, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You see, you know if you've read any of Paul's epistles, this is his main goal and purpose. To preach, not only to preach, but to preach the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. All right, That's the common theme of all that Paul does. It is the theme of this epistle, it is the theme of what he wants to go and do in Rome. And you might be sitting there saying, okay, great, that's great, but what's unique about that? That's what Paul does everywhere. He always talks about the gospel. He's always preaching the gospel. Well, let me tell you one of the things I find to be terribly unique. This is the church that Paul has just said their faith is proclaimed in all of the world. Right? And Paul's not a flatterer. He's not a hyperbole guy. He's not an exaggerator. I don't know what a hyperbole guy is. I'm sorry. He has no hyperbole in his speech. If there's something that needs to be said and it's hard, he will say it. He doesn't just give empty praises. And he says of the Roman church, your faith is known in all of the world. And oh, by the way, I can't wait to come and to preach the gospel to you. Isn't that interesting? This is the church whose faith is declared throughout all of the world, and yet he finds it pertinent, important, essential, urgent to come to them and to preach the good old 
gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ, the Son of God, came to die for sinners, of which we're the foremost. That's what he wants to come and to tell them. How interesting is that? I want to encourage you this morning that there is never a moment that we do not need the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There is never an age that we become. There is never a maturity in our walk with the Lord. There's never a growth in our Christian experience. There's never a low too low or a high too high or a feeling so good about ourselves that we do not need the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simple gospel the good news of his saving work. Many of you are familiar with the fact that Martin Luther often spoke about this, that he preached the gospel every every week, and there's one point where he said that he preached the gospel because if he didn't, people would forget it, and then he added this line. He said, so I was obliged almost to knock my Bible against their heads to send it into their hearts. It's a really good description, the preaching of the gospel. It's amazing, isn't it? that a church could be known throughout all the world for their faith, and yet they also needed to hear the good news. It's amazing. I want to leave you with this little brief story. D.G. Barnhouse, who was the pastor at 10th Press in Philadelphia many years ago, he told a story about a man who was dying. It was his good friend from college, He was dying at an early age, and he said, so me and my friends, who were all mutual friends, we decided we were going to get together, and we were going to spend the day together. And so these friends, they got together, and they were riding in a carriage, and I'm not sure if Barnhouse was before vehicles or if they were just riding in a carriage for the pleasure of it, I don't know, but they were riding in a carriage, and he said they were going into the town, they were going to have a meal together, they were going to just spend time together, and there came a point where this man who was dying of cancer at that moment the, the man said he couldn't really engage in conversation anymore. He was just too tired and worn out. So the friends that were with him, they began to take out these uh, f- philosophy books and to read to him. Apparently he loved philosophy. And so they read to him throughout the rest of the ride. And Barnhouse says that after these men had all left, he was sitting with this man who was dying in the back of this carriage. And he said the man began to speak about how important these friends were to him. Oh, they were so important. And they loved on him well. And he was so thankful for them. But Barnhouse said he's stopped and he said, but do you know what they've been doing all of these long hours? And Barnhouse said, I don't, I don't know, what, what have they been doing? And he said, they've been reading to me and oh, I am so tired and weary of it. And then Barnhouse says this, then turning on me with his large eyes, he began to repeat, this is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And then this man who was dying added with great earnestness, there is nothing else of any use to me now. I want to encourage all of you with a simple thought. There is nothing else of any use to you now. You're all part of the dying human race, born in sin, with a heart mired in brokenness, and there is nothing else of any use to you save for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you never grow tired of it or weary of it. May you never add to it or go beyond it. 
May you never neglect it or deny it. May you never depart from it. For it is the gospel of salvation unto sinners, the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who so loved you that he gave his own life, that you might be called sons and daughters of the living God. There is nothing else of any use to you now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your son Jesus Christ and we thank you for the good, old, simple gospel. We know it's not simple to you. It's a plan laid before the foundation of the earth in which very God of very God would come to earth taking on human flesh, live a blameless life, be crucified, suffered, be crucified, and be buried, suffering the wrath of you, the Father, for every sin of every believer who had ever come to faith. Bearing that weight on the cross, being buried in the ground, raising from the grave, having victory over death and sin, ascending to heaven, and now interceding for us. We know that the gospel is complex and beautiful, but to us it is simple. It is by grace received through faith, not of works, lest any man would boast it comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ, that if we trust and believe, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, died for our sins, that we would be saved. Lord, I ask that that would never grow old, that we would never grow weary of it, but every day that we wake, we would be enamored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you, our Father. We thank you that your spirit is at work among us, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.